Turn your Bible to the second chapter of the Gospel of John, the Good Wine. 2,000 years later, it's still true. People still try to impress their friends and family with all-out, full-force, over-the-top wedding celebrations. The bigger, the bolder, the brassier, the better. As a result of all the pretentious airs and demonstrative displays, many have come to where they really don't care to attend weddings. I can remember my grandfather never attending weddings with my grandmother unless it was a family affair. I remember just a kid sitting in his house one day. My Mimi comes in and says, were you going to the wedding with me today? To which my papa replied, I would not have attended my own wedding unless I had to. <laughs> one bride described the events of her nuptial night this way. The pastor's wife went into labor the morning of the wedding, so at the last minute we had to find a new pastor. My fiance lost the marriage license right before the wedding. The vocalist canceled that day. It rained all day. The sister-in-law from Heck, though she didn't say Heck, decided that my favorite aunt was to be her maid for the day. My father-in-law told my dad, your daughter isn't much to look at, but she has a delightful personality. Whew. My new mother-in-law told my former mother-in-law she was a widow. Uh, she was a young bride at 28, but she was a widow. My new mother-in-law told my former mother-in-law that the bride didn't need two mother-in-laws, so get out and get lost. Well, here's the progress report on that couple. They've now been married for 23 years, have two sons, ages 21 and 2019. Until this day, the bride's dad has not spoken to the groom's dad, not once since the wedding. Sometimes we forget that wedding events are for the worshiping of the Lord Jesus Christ and not to worship the bride nor the bride's mother who sometimes have found in the concophony of confusion think that their very social self-worth is somehow attached to this most significant, most significant event ever known in the history of humanity. So absurd are the requests that come in about weddings today that after each wedding, we rewrite the wedding policies. In fact, after this summer, we'll be rewriting them again. I've had to say no to things like that come down the pipeline of paperwork. No, you cannot sing making love in a double wide trailer in the sanctuary of First Baptist Church. <laughs> and no, your Pomeranian puppy cannot be the ring bearer and bring it down the aisle. I will not whistle for the dog to run down to me to bring the ring. Both actual requests through my years of pastoring here. Well, so I'm very thankful that the Lord's first miracle was at a wedding. We need to improve our weddings. If we ever need the Lord's presence, it is at the weddings. Now, my grandfather would be disappointed to learn that Jesus did go to weddings in fact, we begin by learning that Jesus was invited to the wedding. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. Well, now, at the end of John chapter 1, we meet a man by the name of Nathaniel. And Nathaniel declares who Jesus is, the Son of God, after Jesus tells him, 
everything there is to know about Nathanael without ever having spoken a word to him. He realizes that this indeed is the rabbi, the son of God. At the end of John, we learn that Nathanael is from Cana of Galilee. So now John takes us from Nathanael, the, from Cana to Cana itself for a wedding. Now notice how the wedding happened. Look at verse 1. And on the third day. Now I don't want to make too much of it, but you can't read a gospel and read on the third day and not pick up the allusion to the resurrection itself. Those early listeners of the text, those who were after the day of the resurrection, would have heard that echo, that shadow of the glorious consummation of the resurrection of the Christ represented always in those words. And on the third day, we start out with an image of the full gospel and the resurrection of our Christ. Now, Cana is only eight or nine miles uh, just away from, from Nazareth. So there is no surprise that Jesus and his brothers and his mother and the family would be attending the wedding there. But there's a tragic event that happens at the wedding. Look at verse 3. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said, they have no wine. The wine always gives out, doesn't it? My mother used to say to me, all good things come to an end. Eventually, the wine always runs out. Now, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is in an absolute panic. They have no wine. Now, Mary may be a bit of a busybody here, but that's the way women are who in our, that culture and ours play the role of the hostess. They respond. What I would call this is the embarrassment of emptiness. This is the embarrassment of emptiness. The guests are there, they're ready to refresh, and there is no wine. All the goodies are gone. You've been there when there's three people in the hamburger line and there's only one hamburger left. You know what Mary is feeling like. There's really nothing that she could do. And if you thought our weddings were extravagant, did you know that these wedding feasts could last as long as a week? No wonder the wine ran out. The wine ran out. Perhaps they're poor, and they provided a minimal provision, hoping beyond all hope that it would last until the end of the week of the wedding feast. In fact, in that first century, well, you need to know that the bridegroom's family would be liable to a lawsuit for not providing for their guest. By the way, I do want you to notice that the biblical way of the wedding is for the groom's parents to pay for it all. I hope you see that here. That's, that's the way it happened in the Bible. Uh, the, the, the groom would go to the bride's house and pick up the bride. Then they would go to the bridegroom's house for the religious ceremony and for the reception. And so it was the groom's family that bore the bill. The fact that I'm a father of three girls has nothing to do with the forming of my theology. This is the way that it was in the Bible. Up until this moment, there have been no miracles in the ministry of our Lord. This is the first miracle. So how does Mary know that he can turn the water into wine? Well, let's not forget, Mary is fully aware that his very birth is a miracle in itself. Uh, she had long pondered all that the Christ would be able to do. And Mary is there at the very beginning at the birth of Jesus. 
And Mary is there at the foot of the cross at the end of this gospel. It is Mary who stays there by her son. Mary is probably there at his baptism when the heavens themselves clap their hands in thunderous pleasure with the cries. Jesus, this is going to be an embarrassing situation. Hurry up, son. Do something, she might have said. Now, his response in verse 4 has been greatly misunderstood. Woman, what I have to do with you, my hour is not yet come. First of all, we're not to interpret woman as some sort of derogatory term for the mother that he obviously loves greatly. She's at the end of this gospel, and Jesus makes sure she's cared for. In fact, at the end of this gospel, when Jesus is on the cross, he says, woman, behold your son, pointing to John, uh, the beloved disciple. So woman is not a curt term at all. And he says to the Samaritan woman at the well, he calls her woman. It is not a short term. In fact, what he's saying to her is something like this. Mom, you can't set my agenda. My hour has not yet come. I can only do what the Father allows me to do. Jesus' hour throughout the gospel is a reference to his crucifixion and his resurrection, his passion week. And Jesus can perform miracles only at a rate that will not expose his messiahship too fast so he accomplishes all that the Father wants him to accomplish. So... Mary doesn't feel rebuffed. In fact, she understands he's still going to do the miracle, but she's just reminded that the Heavenly Father is setting the timetable that Mary herself, as special as she is, cannot command the Son to move forward farther than the Father would allow. Well, the first thing I want you to see from the story is do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. Look at verse 5. His mother says to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Mary's not discouraged. She fully thinks that Jesus is going to perform a miracle. Whatever he tells you to do, you do it. That's ultimate obedience, isn't it? In fact, Jesus himself says in John 6, This is the work of the Father, that you trust the one that he sent. This is the work of God, that you trust the one that he sends. Whatever Jesus tells you, and do it. Maybe when you were little, or maybe as a parent you've done this, when our parents tell us to do something, we start with a plethora of questions. Why do you want me to do it now instead of later? Why do we got to do it your way instead of my way? And why and why and why and why? And eventually every parent loses patience and utters those words, because I said so. That's why. Because Jesus says so, that's why. Whatever he tells you to do, then do it. Be obedient. As the story unfolds, there are six stone water pots. They each hold 25 gallons. We're talking about 150 gallons plus here. The storyteller tells us in verse 7 that the water pots are filled to the brim. This is no powder punch miracle. There's nothing that can be added to the water. Well, the second thing I want you to see is don't make it too complicated. First of all, do whatever he tells you. And second of all, don't make it too complicated. Look at verse 7. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. 
and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. Fill, draw, take. That's it. Do whatever he asks you to do. Fill, draw, and take. Three commands from the Christ to the servants. No abracadabra, no magic words from a Merlin-like Messiah, no incantations, no conditions for the miracle. Everything is absolutely ordinary. In fact, obedience is usually that simple. Feel, draw, and take. Sometimes I think that we want to make following Christ more complicated because we don't really want to be obedient. Feel, draw, take. Do whatever he asks you to do. Feel, draw, and take. There's a third thing I want you to see. Know all good gifts come from God. Know the source of all good gifts. No one actually sees a miracle happen. It's tasted it's not a seen miracle, it's tasted. In fact, we're told here that the head waiter did not know. He's in charge of all the refreshments and the occasion. He does not know where it came from, verse 9. The bride doesn't know where the wine has come from. The groom does not know where the wine has come from. But we do know, verse 9, the servants who drew the water knew. The servants who drew the water knew. New. And later we learn that the disciples know what has happened. God is the source of all good gifts in your life. All the good wine comes from God. Whatever it is in your life that is good, God has provided that gift. Don't be like the bridegroom who doesn't know who has provided for the wine at your wedding. Don't be like the head waiter in charge of all the festivities, ignorant of the source of the good wine. Every good gift you have in your life comes from God. The one who created you and redeemed you and sustained you. The one who knows the plans he has for you. Here's a fourth and final thing I want you to see. Discipleship is a daily decision. Look at verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee... And manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Now Matthew and Luke would call this a miracle. But John uses a different word for the miracles of Jesus. John uses the word throughout his gospel of signs. This is the first sign that Jesus will do. Now a, a sign is something that points to something beyond itself. There's a sign in the hallway that says sanctuary this way. That sign is not the sanctuary. That sign is pointing you to the reality that is great in this room. This is the sanctuary, not the sign. Well, the miracle of turning water to wine isn't really the event in itself. It is a sign. And the event is that Jesus Christ is pointed out as the Messiah. Well, the truth of the matter is, Jesus is the giver of all good gifts, and he can take our wash water. That's what those barrels were used for, pouring over the hands of all the guests. It was a purification, right? He can take our wash water and turn it into the good wine. I want you to notice how the, how the disciples respond. 
The disciples, look at verse 11, believed in him. A literal translation would be this. The disciples believed into him. Almost every time that John talks about believing, he talks about believing into Jesus. Believing into the Christ. They put their trust in Christ. Now, you might object and say, well, now, already in this gospel, we've called the fishermen disciples. They've already believed him. And Philip has already heard the command to come and follow me. Yes, Peter and Andrew and Philip, those who followed Jesus, well, they had already cast their lot with him. But John wants us to know that, again, on this occasion, they have believed in the miracle of the good wine. And they have believed in him again. See, believing into Jesus is not just a momentary event. It begins for sure, but it's a daily choice. And the deceiver will try to convince us every day that he is not the giver of all good gifts and that we don't have to do whatever Jesus tells us to do. That there's another way, a secret, a shortcut. But in reality, trusting a living Christ is a repeated daily decision. Like breathing and walking every day, we need to believe into Jesus. Well, the disciples get it. Verse 12, we learn about his brothers who do not yet get it. The reality is that you and I can stand in the very midst of a miracle and we can miss the message of the Messiah. Oh, I think the servants get it who did the fill, the draw, and the take. And we learn, learn that disciples get it because they believed into their Jesus. But as we read this gospel, we learn that the brothers of Jesus did not yet get it. You can find yourself this morning walking in the very midst of a miracle and that God is a giver of all good gifts in your life, but you can miss what God is doing with you and through you because of his Christ. Well, there's our first miracle, the good wine. Do whatever he tells you to do. That may be the best advice in all the scripture right there in verse 5. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. End of story. Don't make it complicated. It's obedience. Know the source of all good gifts is God. And make the daily decision. To believe into Jesus. Let us pray. Oh God, this morning we look at this very first miracle of our Lord. And we learn, oh God, that you're the giver of all good gifts. And you can take our wash water too and turn it into the good wine. And Father, whatever you ask us to do, we are to be absolutely obedient. And daily we are to choose to believe into you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.